Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of ClearCast, which will be part one of a few-part series. So our guest, Lauren Rich, knows what it's like firsthand to live with the aftermath of combat and help vets overcome that trauma uh, because she's actually married to a combat vet and has worked as a combat trauma PTSD psychotherapist with the VA for seven years. So she also previously held a clearance and now has a private practice treating PTSD and combat veterans, many of whom have had classified traumas. So today for this episode, we're going to talk about combat veterans kicking trauma's ass. So first, I thought, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me, but I thought that we could talk about some therapy misconceptions that some of our security clearance holders may have. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, I think one misconception is that they can't seek help because their trauma is classified. Um, I have seen veterans who have had classified events or traumas since the early 80s. You know, they were serving in Germany doing uh, helicopter routine flyovers and things like that. Um, and, and those things still remain classified for many of them. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't seek treatment. There are ways to do that. You just have to find a qualified, knowledgeable uh, professional who can help you through that process. So I, I think that's the number one misconception. Um, the second would probably be that for someone who has an active clearance, seeking treatment uh, is a risk for losing said clearance. And I completely understand why. Uh, there is a lot of fear in that, especially when your clearance is what enables you to provide for your family. And it's partially your livelihood. Without it, you don't know what you would do or you don't know who you could work for. You've maybe never done anything else. And so the fear of losing that is, is essentially the fear of losing income. Well, so yeah, issues individuals with security clearances may need assistance with. Uh, let's talk a little bit generally about what your practice handles. I know, you know, marriage, finances, deployments are a big one, uh, but even drone satellite trauma and other classified events. So what else are you working with? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I probably see about 90 to 95 percent combat veterans. The other five percent is, is just regular veterans who maybe served in peacetime. Um, I have a few civilians that I see, maybe a small handful that have major traumas, like a husband committed suicide or something like that. But um, for the most part, it is, you know, straight combat trauma pretty much all the time, um, which includes EOD techs, and, and I have a nuke guy or two. Um, so when you think about that, uh, the, the, the variety helps a lot um, because we've not just got traumas in our professional lives, we've got traumas in our personal lives. And so to go to particular types of treatment, you know, a couple of them demand that people choose what we call the index trauma, which just means the worst of the worst. Um, but my problem with that, and, and I think the logical argument is how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to ask veterans and active working professionals to choose the worst trauma when potentially the worst traumas are a toss up between losing my best friend in Iraq versus losing my infant child to a cardiac problem. Um, I had one veteran who 
deployed to Afghanistan and his son drowned in the creek behind his house. So wow. how do you, how on earth are you supposed to choose between two major life events like that? It just, it just does not seem logical. Um, so I think part of the struggle is that we have a lot of folks who have complex trauma. Uh, many of the, of the folks in the soft community have deployed repeatedly, you know, 13, 14 times, maybe at a shorter time frame, um, but they've deployed more frequently as were our 11 Bravos and 0311s, you know, the Marine Corps guys, they are deploying for six months to 14 months at a time, but maybe only three to four times in their career. Sure. Complex. Humans are complex. Trauma is complex. So sort of mm-hmm. switching gears to the uh, security clearance process. And let's touch on, because I, I'm not sure if the, the average security clearance holder, especially if they haven't had to engage in some sort of counseling services, but the difference between progress and psychotherapy notes and why it's important to know that difference. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. Uh, I, I pride myself on being incredibly vague. You know, it's, it's almost comical when you think about it because when you need medical documentation, most of the time you need it to be incredibly detailed because you want another provider um, or, you know, if you if you get in a car wreck on the way to work and you kick the bucket, um, you need the next person to know exactly what was going on when you saw that patient. And so you expect that they're very, very detailed. Uh, in mental health, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's more of the vaguer, the better. Uh, and my approach to that is that is for protection of my client, of whoever I am treating. So let's talk about the difference between psychotherapy notes and progress notes. Progress notes are what are given to the insurance company. They are intentionally meant to be vague. They say things like uh, veteran-oriented to time and place, um, mood, depressive symptoms, et cetera. But then it will say generics like client reports abuse by uh, relative from ages six to 10 or whatever it may be. Um, and, And that would be the extent of it. Sometimes I don't even put those things in. The psychotherapy note is the property of your provider. It can be destroyed at any time. It is only accessible through a judge's subpoena. And that will say much more detailed things like uh, client or veteran reports sexual abuse by mother from age 6 to 10. Um, And so part of that is the insurance company doesn't need to know. They just need to know a diagnosis code and the logistical side. They don't need to know every instance of your personal life. The other part is that that is meant to protect people because sometimes progress notes can be pulled for legal purposes in court. Uh, I think the biggest concern, though, for the clearance holder, and I have had this happen, when I was working at the VA, I was treating a GS-15 Uh, who worked as a civilian army employee. He had deployed and done active duty time. I think he probably did three uh, active duty enlistments and then retired as a reservist. And he's coming to me as a civilian employee. So in the VA system, I can pull up his deployments to theater. I can still see some of those. Uh, But what ended up happening was In his job, he continues to deploy to ammo supply posts around the world. And he went in for a pre-deployment physical, and all of the notes from the VA were sitting on that doctor's desk. And in the the old days, it was just a a one-way street, pretty much. You know, the VA could see Army information, but the Army didn't necessarily see VA information. And uh, we had to learn the hard way that that is no longer the case. And, And so... 
for people like that who are still actively deploying, um, I would openly talk to your provider and say, I am concerned about people reading my progress notes and maybe not concerned about your skill set, but I'm concerned that they're going to misinterpret what you are writing. Um, and that's why I say the more vague, the better off both of us are. Um, and that's not being deceptive. That's called protecting mm -hmm. people's privacy. Um, without privacy, we feel like we have no no trust, basically. And we can't be open and honest about our problems. Sure. Something that I, I don't think a lot of folks would be aware of. Um, so thanks for touching on that note. Thinking about mental health adverse behavior and having that open discussion with your provider to mitigate any concerns. Let's talk about that with the security clearance holder. Well, a lot of times the stress of the job will manifest in, in other ways. So it will be things like chronically high blood pressure, uh, anxiety, you know, struggles in relationships, maybe even infidelity or affairs on, on either part of, of the spouse. Things like finances most definitely are stressful for people. Uh, and, and those will be things that will be the everyday living. So when people call and they say, I need to come see you, my first question is, paint me a picture of what we're dealing with on an everyday basis. Is it you have a hard time getting up and going to work? You don't feel engaged? Uh, you don't have a desire to be there? Or you're going to the casino after work? You're doing some online gambling? Or you know your, your spouse has said they want a divorce because they feel like you're not physically or emotionally present in the relationship. So those are your, those are your manifestations. That's what you're gonna see on an everyday basis. When my, my best recommendation is that when you start with a provider, that you find somebody you can really trust. That's about 80% of what therapy is. Modality and, and client engagement are the other 20%. But I would say about 80% is, can you trust the person who is sitting across from you? And if you can't, then you need to go find someone else. But when you do find that person that you trust, you need to have that open dialogue and say, these are my concerns. This is what I'm worried about. I have an SF86 that I have to fill out in, in less than three years. I know I'm gonna have to have a polygraph. Um, so how do you recommend that we approach this? I want to make my life better, but I don't want anything to be misinterpreted. Sure. Well, and so I guess what recommendations or advice further would you even have? Because I know mental health, that's a concern when folks are filling out the SF-86. What do they actually have to report? Is it going to be looked at by an adjudicator uh, in a negative light? So if you could elaborate on maybe some mm -hmm. of those tips for folks that are trying to mitigate any sort of mental health concerns that they may have had in the past, but also obtain that security clearance. So I actually have a specific YouTube video about this on my channel um, that I've covered. And I, I did that intentionally because I had someone who's emailed me a question um, about the SF-86 and, and they were very concerned. So um, when you look at it, it asks you if you have seen a provider within a certain number of years. Um, they give you a, a time frame, if I remember correctly. And there are a couple of exceptions to what they're asking. Um, I believe divorce is one of those, although I think that's really ironic because divorce plays such a large role in, in people's lives. And when you look at the stress that analysts go through or, you know, special agents at the FBI, for example, the divorce rate is just astronomically high. Um, so it, it's, it's ironic that that's the exception, if, if I remember correctly. When, when folks are filling out your SF-86, it asks you to disclose. Always, always, always disclose. Don't ever let them find out. If you tell them, it is 
so much better. Um, it, it's so much smoother that way. Uh, a lot of people end up seeking treatment while they're in. Most of them, though, I feel like just utilize their employee assistance program, which has pros and cons. Um, so when we think about that process, employee assistance, and and let's take the FBI, for example, where, where I interned, um, we would see people very briefly, I think six, five to six sessions maybe uh, at most, and then we would find you someone in the community for long-term treatment. Most of those were general stressors. Occasionally, they were stressors about mental health, uh, but most of the time they were just occasional job stressors or, or at-home stressors. That is a temporary fix. Um, and unfortunately, I have heard from many managers, many, many managers at, at private companies um, all across the U.S. and, and even in the military um, that employee assistance is, is fairly worthless. And unfortunately, I think that's a case for a lot of companies because what's happening is you have very, very specific niche employees, and these are generalist therapist. Uh, they may not have any experience at all. You know, let, let's let's take, for example, let's say you're a major contractor and that you use Cigna or uh, MetLife as your employee assistance program. When your folks have issues and they're having high stress because of job-related um, factors, they're going to talk to somebody who may not even know about their job. They may not even know the lingo to begin the discussion about their job. So part of it is that it's a hurdle in uh, in finding somebody accessible, which, which kind of leads us to the next question of, do we utilize someone inside our agency or do we utilize someone outside our agency? You know, I have agents all over the country and, and some all over the world um, who will tell me in talking about their government um, employer that it sounds great in theory, but in reality, quote unquote, they eat their own. And so you may go in for assistance, but they end up putting you up for review by the time it's done. So I think leadership has to take a very hard look at what is available for people. Um, Reevaluate your employee assistance program, especially if you utilize one that's outside uh, of the company. And um, ask your people what they think. You know, look at look at your usage reports. Ask, you know, give, give anonymous surveys. See if people will give you any feedback at all. Uh, because if you're paying for something that has no benefit, well, I mean, you're you're essentially just paying for something that has no benefit, and and people continue to struggle, and the and the problem isn't resolved. So I would say that's a that's a big problem is is uh, evaluating the employee assistance unit. Well, and so thinking about if you are going to as an employee seek out that you know mental health treatment, going with your agency or going with a private clinician. I'm sure it's agency specific, but are there a set of rules that folks should be abiding by if they are going to seek out a clinician that's outside of their agency or private? I'm sure there are many that are specific to agencies and many that are specific to the job themselves. So we're we're talking about Section 21, psychological and emotional health. Um, they specifically say if you are declaring mental incompetency, obviously, I'm sure that is a rarity. I have no doubt. They do ask if you're ever mandated, ever ordered you to consult with a mental health clinician. Always go voluntarily. If you think that something is is about to be mandatory for you, seek seek treatment before they make it mandatory. That will always be better. Your question to what they what can they talk about? Boy, that's where it gets tricky. So a lot of times Internal departments use employee assistance because, you know, the FBI, for example, people have a clearance. And so you can openly come in and, and talk to them about issues. Um, however, to see somebody who does not have a clearance, you know, the uh, 
the stance from from many people in the field of psychology and psychotherapy is that the client clinician protects people from disclosure. So you can come in with your clearance and in their theory, you can disclose and things are protected by client clinician confidentiality. I do not subscribe to that opinion. Um, you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Just because we have client clinician confidentiality, it does not mean that that covers you. I, I even had this argument when I worked for the government and I tried to get them to renew my clearance and they said that it wasn't necessary. Uh, and I said, how are people supposed to come in and openly talk about classified events? And they said, well, your client clinician, you know, it, it covers them and it, it does not cover them. Um, so you have to realize that if you can find somebody that you trust, first of all, working around the NDA meanings, means not disclosing certain aspects. And that's very doable. I have people who <laughs> we talk in code all the time. Um, if you were to put a microphone in the room, you would have no idea what we're saying, but it, it's, it's very discreet and it works. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm such a fan of particular treatments, let's take uh, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, for example, is because you can come in and see me and you don't have to disclose anything. Uh, and I have done this repeatedly um, from modern wars of, of folks on a, on a uh, Air Force gunship to um, events in the 1980s and, and even some in Desert Storm. And I am not kidding you. Sometimes I only know what continent we're on. Sometimes I know what country we're in. Um, but other than that, I have no idea what is going on. And we are still able to process trauma and make nightmares go away and make anxiety go down because you and I have a great working relationship and we know how to approach that. If you can find that with a local provider, that is the, the route to go. So don't think that you have to see somebody just because they have a clearance. Just because your provider is in the employee assistance unit or just because your provider has a clearance doesn't mean that they're quality. So we need to find somebody who's quality and mm -hmm. either has a clearance or can do the workaround. Well, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more because I'm sure that for some security clearance holders or even folks where, you know, events, their trauma is surrounded by an event that was classified, it could deter them from actually seeking mm -hmm. out treatment that they so desperately need. So let's talk about EMDR a little bit further and why security clearance holders or those folks that have had trauma with classified events and maybe their security clearance has lapsed should be seeking out treatment and why EMDR is so great for that. Sure. So the big three that are endorsed by the DOD and the Department of Veterans Affairs are called prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, and EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I am I'm trained in all three of those, have used all of them for years. So prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy both take the approach that we work in your frontal lobe, meaning that we basically argue with trauma and we work to challenge your thoughts. Um, but part of the struggle is that you have to come into a provider's office and you either have to... Um, verbally recount, or you have to write in narrative form in great detail the, the, uh, the variables of that event. And if you have a classified event, you just can't do that. It's not possible. Um, if you can't include anything beyond continental, you know, continental identifiers, then how are we ever supposed to get to, you know, witnessing the violence against people in, in particular countries? Uh, so that one just, I, there is no logic in that. It, it doesn't make any sense to me how that would be possible. The, the EMDR option 
takes it from a nervous system approach. So in other words, trauma is stored in our bodies. And therefore, even though we argue with it cognitively, it will not be resolved until we take care of our body first and then move to the cognition. And, and there is never, in my opinion, this is just a clinical opinion. You could find a different one anywhere, I'm sure. There is no purpose in asking a why behind trauma. We can ask everything else, but there really is no purpose in that because many times we've done everything we can do to prepare and prevent bad things from happening and they still continue to occur. So when it comes to EMDR, we're really working on the anxiety that's in your body. So in other words, the nausea, the high blood pressure, the sweaty palms, the antsiness, and then we move to cognitions. But that is the only one where you do not have to disclose in great detail what happened during that traumatic event. Well, and, you know, with trauma, it sounds helpful sort of confronting the physical response to what you experienced. Um, so it sounds helpful, certainly, as well, as keeping those events classified. Yes, it is, in my opinion, the most productive. And I say that because in the, the first year that I was prolonged exposure Certified, I probably put at least 30 veterans of multiple deployments through prolonged exposure. And I thought we were doing really well. And then the year mark hit and all of them came back except one. And he only had one isolated trauma from 1991 that involved a ferry boat accident um, near Egypt. And um, it, we were able to resolve that. He had nightly nightmares and we were able to resolve those. All of the others, though, who had deployed multiple times, who had been in law enforcement, who had worked for the State Department or, or whatever that may be, um, and had complex trauma or repeat traumas, came back and said, Doc, my symptoms are back. That one still bothers me, or that one no longer bothers me, but all of the others bother me. Uh, so at, at that point, I stopped utilizing it because it is so incredibly hard. Uh, people... People, and, and I think clinicians maybe especially, underestimate how hard treatment is for people. It is the one of the hardest things that you will ever do. Some people say it's harder than actually living through the event itself. Um, and so my promise most of the time to my veterans is if you can get here, I will get you through the rest. You know, just make it to my office and I will guide you through the rest of the process. But when you tack on other things like disclosing um, variables such as sight, sound, and smell, it gets exponentially harder. And so the, the, I learned over time that the dropout rate um, for things like prolonged exposure is ridiculously high. You know, it's, it's somewhere in the 40% range. And so would you ever take a cancer treatment that had a 40% dropout rate? I don't think so. I wouldn't. I would, there's no way I would do that. Find me something better. Uh, so why would we expect people to do that in, in a psychological stance? Um, I also think it very much puts people at ease when they know that they don't have to disclose. And I, I personally, I am hard on every single type of trauma treatment. I am a cynic and a skeptic until I see it actually work. And so over the years, I have figured out for my people and, and who I specialize in that EMDR is the very best treatment available. Excellent. Well, hopefully for some of the folks listening, that gives them uh, a little bit of peace of mind and that they can seek out treatment for those traumatic events or classified events that they don't have to necessarily put that classified information at risk. So that that's a great point, mm -hmm. EMDR, everyone. And you can find more about some of these treatments filling out the SF-86, like Lauren said, on her YouTube channel. So Lauren, 
closing thoughts for our audience today are secret squirrels in regards to mental health treatment. We thank you for joining us, but any closing thoughts that you want to share? I, I would just like to leave one thing to, to chew on for folks is that um, trauma is not always a in the physical presence of event. Um, so for those of you that do a lot of computer or analytic work, you know, you work in the Intel industry and, and um, specifically to UAVs or those who interact with drones a lot, uh, you are at just a high risk, just like everybody else is, just like the 11 Bravo on the ground to develop uh, PTSD symptoms. And I think to a certain extent, because of how the ROEs are designed for you all and certain aspects of your job, that you're actually at greater risk, um, specifically for the times where you have to defend your decision. Um, and, and, and that's a complex area to be. Um, and we can talk about that, of course, in the future, but there is really no difference between being physically present and being physically elsewhere and witnessing the trauma or the violence. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, also, uh, I, I'm no clinician, but comparing traumatic events, you know, everybody has their own trauma that they're experiencing and, you know, the the symptoms that they're exhibiting. It's, it's not uh, apples to apples. So, you know, again, we thank you so much for joining us today. Like I said, everyone, this is part one of a couple part series. So next time Lauren and I are, when she joins us on the podcast, we're going to talk about why employees' mental health should matter to employers. So if you're a defense contractor or you're a federal agency looking for a little bit more information on helping employees, ret retaining employees, uh, and helping them to avoid burnout, you know, we've heard about a mass exodus from the security cleared industry to the private sector. So we're going to touch on that a little bit. Um, what managers can do and how they can work with employees, clinicians. Uh, so treatment for security clearance holders. All, everything that an employer will need to know, we're going to cover that next time. So uh, please drop us a comment if you have specific questions and we'll be sure to address that in our next part of the series as well. So as always, for more information on mental health or your security clearance, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com.